Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Luke Stutters. Hello. Valentino Stoll. Hey, now. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. I just want to point out, Dave, it feel like, feels like it's been forever since I've seen you. Either you've been on and I've been gone or vice versa or anyway. It has been a while. Good to be back all together for the most part. Yeah, time. absolutely. Now, before the show, Luke was complaining about state machines. I mean, he was decrying the lack of virtue in any state machine implementation he's ever seen. And we started talking about like business logic and how that gets handled and stuff. And I, I think, Luke, you can kind of explain what you're seeing. And I think it's a good jumping off point for how we have this conversation. And OK, so if if this isn't working for you, what to do here? Or I've seen this and it's kind of an anti-pattern or whatever, right? Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv. And I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Sure. So we have some code that can kill people. We don't have to. There's too much tension on it. We don't know. Literally, it's, it's, it's a dangerous bit of machinery. If it goes wrong, oh, people okay. die without going into too many details. Now, the good news is we have a lot of testing, right? We have a lot of, we have full simulator. So you can kind of do, you know, just like they would on something like a kind of flight control system. But it's dangerous. It's fundamentally dangerous. If it goes wrong, people could die. So we're designing a system this week, and they want to use a state machine to do the logic. Logic's not complicated, but I want to use a state machine. And I said, I've never seen this work. I know about state machines. I understand them. I've worked with a lot of code that uses them. But I said, don't do it this way. Just use really simple logic. If it's really important and you don't want it to go wrong, make it as simple as you can. Please, please don't put a state machine in. So they put the state machine in, we fire up the simulator, and sure enough, complete disaster. No one knows why. And we're having to redo the whole thing, re-examine it. We're drawing up big tables. And it's not it's not the first time I've seen this pattern. People Google stuff, they read about it, they reach for it, and it doesn't work out. So I've developed this incredible prejudice against state machines and now I, and, it, <laughs> and it, i wasn't a popular guy at work because they were like oh this is going to make luke really happy now that this isn't working i was like yes yes it did make me really happy you know because i told you it was going to do it and it's good it didn't do it right but i get awfully frustrated with these patterns especially a situation where you've got something complex you know and it's it's like a kind of human flaw where if we see something complex, the first instinct is to 
choose something complicated to manage it, right? It's to increase the complexity. And uh, the more important it is, the more people seem to overcomplicate things. Yeah, I, it's funny because you were talking about this and I've had some nightmare scenarios with state machines where effectively it was, it just made it harder to find what was going on. And some of the transitions happened on the state changes and some of them didn't. That That's usually where things start to kind of fall apart. Is it's like, okay, is this just a callback or is it just a method that I can call that makes the change that I want? Or is it in this state machine logic that changes all the time? And so I hear you. I think there are probably some simpler scenarios where it makes a lot more sense. But yeah, as soon as it starts to get complicated, I find that it breaks out of the box where state machines work really well. And so it's like, okay, well, how do you manage this flow, right? Because I know a lot of people don't really like the callbacks either, right? They don't like the, hey, when I make this change, trickle through all this other stuff. Sometimes it's useful. Sometimes it's a good pattern for it. Sometimes it's not. And so, yeah, how, how do you how do you go about fixing this issue so that your models or entities or whatever you want to call them kind of reflect what you need them to be doing? And that's the kind of funny thing about it, where if your situation is so complex, maybe adding state machines to kind of add even more complexity is not a good idea. So you want to use state machines on simple scenarios where there is a very simple flow, not too much is going on, but then it's like, why complicate this simple thing with adding in something like state machines? Mm -hmm. So I, I do see y'all's points and I do tend to side with you all on the same reasoning that you're adding a certain level of complexity with this new framework or pattern with little benefit. You know, so when I'm picking a design pattern to do something, often try to see what am I trying to accomplish? What is the actual end goal that we need? And then kind of trace back what are the steps that we need to do to take to achieve this end goal? You know, I think with state machines, one of the common examples is like driving to the grocery store. So you need to first, you know, get in your car, you need to turn on the engine, you then need to put it in gear, you then need to travel to the destination, turn off the car. So each one of these have their own different states and See, you, you know, you, potential. No, those are steps, not states. You don't have to turn Correct. off the car. Yeah. You can leave that thing running. <laughs> You're only going to be for half a minute, man. It's fine. <laughs> so I think that we get into these situations where things are so overly complex. We still have the need to solve this business problem. But what is the best way to do it? It's not a state machine. And it's not a state machine. It's never a state machine. Dave, have you ever <laughs> seen have you ever seen a state machine work? Have you ever had that experience when someone says, let's use a state machine? It all worked out fine. Oh, absolutely. No. Yeah, you have go on, go on, defend <laughs> I, defend the oh, state yeah. machine. I think state machines are misused quite a lot. And I I think it gives them a bad rap. I mean, state machines come from like a mechanical engineering standpoint, mm -hmm. right? Like that's where they were invented. That's the purpose when you have machines that are stuck in loops in a certain state and you, they just are autonomous in that state. And if you use them kind of as they were made, so for example, in like a web server or something that's lower level that deals with things in particular states, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense. If you're trying to apply it to like, a you know, an ORM model, as an example, a Rails model, I think it quickly becomes a mess trying to apply it, you know, for states, something that's stateless. 
Yeah, I think I think you're mostly correct there. The issues that I've run into is that I find myself complicating my code. Am I in this state? Then I'm going to do this. If I am I in this state, I'm going to do this. And yeah, it usually is down to yeah, I'm I'm I almost ought to have different models that I compose this thing out of if that's the way I'm going to do it. But yeah, I, I think so, there is a place for them. I just yeah, where people are reaching for them in the right place. I think a good example of where I think we fall into that trap of we need a state machine to handle this is let's say for a real world example, because most of us are employed by an employer. And by that, we have annual or quarterly reviews that we have to go through. So as a employee, I have to fill out a self evaluation, my manager has to fill out their evaluation. Some companies might do 360 reviews. And so this whole idea of the review process, you have many different moving parts. And before you can do a sign-off, certain things have to have happened first. All the 360 reviews have to have been completed. The self-review, the manager review. And so you would kind of almost jump towards, like, we need a state machine to manage this because it's so complex. But I think what happens is we start reaching for it, we implement it, but then when something goes wrong, that's when I think I really had the issue with this state machine because tracing back where something went wrong, I think is a lot more difficult with these kind of deeply nested, conditional and relational patterns where... It just gets to be a nightmare very quickly. And when something goes wrong, you have no idea what or why it happened. You're unable to reproduce that exact scenario. And then you're just kind of left scratching your head. Why is this sign-off not happening when all the reviews are done? But with the nature of state machine, some logic somewhere that you've added to manage these states, it's just kind of gone wonky. Yeah, that's fair. The other thing is, is I find that state machines work well if all of the action happens on a state transition, then then they're really easy to think about. Yeah, I've found that state machines are great in isolation, <laughs> right? Like wh- when you add like a Rails model as an example, that's backed by an entire different state machine, right? Like the Rails app- active record is kind of stateful in that it keeps track of whether or not that it's persisted to the database or not that is a state of that particular framework i mean it's hidden away from you right and so when you introduce a new state machine on top of that that is dependent on it and not be and it's not explicit because you know the whole idea of rails is that you don't know how the internals work you don't have to know or anyway right and so like that state is internal to itself but when you put a whole new state machine on top of it it starts to become dependent on that state, other state machine, right? Like if it's not persisted, the state you might think that model is in a particular state that you've defined for it, it in isolation, so to speak. But it's really not. It's you know, it's kind of stacked on top of a whole bunch of other dependencies, like you're saying. And I think that if you tr- if you make like kind of like a poor old Ruby object, your state machine, where you can closely keep track of its internal state and its external dependencies are separate, it makes it much easier to work with and be able to, to debug. 
Yeah. One thing, though, that I see with Active Record and what state is it in, right? Is it persisted? Is it valid? Is it blah, blah, blah? Is that most of those things come off of different fields, right? So there's not really a state field in the Active Record. There's not a state attribute of the mo- of the model object. Instead, it's created at, updated at, as to whether or not it's a new object or you run through all the validations and then if it has errors, it's not valid. And so if you look at it from that perspective, do you need a state machine or do you just need some other way of keeping the ledger straight so that what its state is? And I think those are two things that kind of illustrate another issue with state machines is that, and you kind of pointed this out, Valentino, is that often you have different states for different parts of different processes, right? So valid, not valid, persisted, not persisted, or some of the other ones that I've worked on, right? It's it's in this state as far as where or how it's been reasoned or reckoned one way or the other, but then has this other state for keeping track of how many there are or whether or not it's been managed in this other way. And so if I'm trying to keep track of something complicated like my car, right? There's a state for my oil level. There's a state for my fuel level. There's a state for my engine temperature, right? And and all of those things matter and they all kind of compile up to it runs right now. Yeah, but I totally agree there. And I think that if we deconstruct our need into small individual steps, mm-hmm. then you find yourself not really needing a state machine, but you just have a lot of moving parts. And by having a lot of moving parts, then you are able to look at each one individually and address those issues. So for your car reference with the oil level, that in itself is kind of one entity and that would be very easy to manage. Is my oil level correct? And then you have another state for your oil. Does the oil need to be changed? And you can kind of control each one of these in their own poros, so to speak, to manage those. But then you have an overall dashboard or you have this overall idea where in a car, it's your gauge cluster where you can see an overview of the state of your vehicle and you can be alerted if something goes wrong and stuff. So I think trying to find that kind of translation into a Ruby application is kind of where we need to get to. And I think that Rails itself just provides everything that we need because we can just write plain old Ruby to handle a lot of this. So I think where I get myself in trouble when trying to deal with complex business logic is I try to do too much at one time. So if I try to have one model do something, and then when something happens on that model, I then use a dirty callback to then do something on another model. And then that other model does something because an event has happened or triggered and it does something on another model. That's where I get myself in trouble is that I've tried to take this one idea and have it chained down to too many different things. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I had simply done away with all callbacks in the controller action where I'm performing something where a user, an actor has called to the application to perform a task, I can then linearly say, this needs to happen. Once this finishes happening, then do something else. Or if that all can happen in the background job, then call a background job, have that background job then linearly step through the necessary steps. You could have guard clauses or whatever you need to exit out of that state 
do any kind of error logging that you need, but you're then not having to trace back how the heck did we get into this situation? Or how did this particular record get into this state? Or how did this email get triggered and sent to a person in a different company in this multi-tenant application? Which if you've never been in those kind of situations, it's like, it's very difficult to trace back because so many things kind of ping-ponged off of each other to get into this situation. Now you're at this end result and you have no ability to really trace back to find out why or how this happened. So I think doing it more linearly approaching is going to be easier than having this cascading or waterfalling way of making some kind of event trigger or occur. I can agree with that. It sounds like you're advocating for some smaller pieces, though, for each step, right? So it's what is this piece doing? What is this other piece doing? What is what's the story on this thing, that thing or the other thing, right? And just keeping it small and easy to reason about as instead of having that cascade, how do you determine what belongs where and how do you keep track of, okay, this is the small change that I'm actually going to care about here? Yeah. So as a general rule of thumb, I try not to put any of the business logic in the controller or in the model. I try to extract it out to a plain old Ruby object that can be initialized, instantiated, and then called on because that's going to be very easily testable. If I have a small Poro that does one thing, does it well, I don't have to worry about anything else. So take a product search page. So if you are building a, you have a index of a million objects and you want to query and do some filtering, some sorting, some searching on those, that can be a really complex thing. Especially if you have, if you've ever been to Newegg, all the different types of categories that they have on that search filter on the left-hand side, you can search by CPU generation, you can search by the processor type, the uh, chipset, all this other stuff. And building that kind of search functionality is extremely complicated, mm-hmm. especially to do it right. So I would take, normally in the past, I would first just have a controller action that you make a post to, it does a search. And that controller action would then have all of that logic in there where, okay, if you selected something from this category, then we're going to add this into our query. If you selected something from that category or if you put a price range on there and the view or rather the controller action gets complicated extremely quickly. So you might say, oh, okay, well then let's just make a class method on our model that's called dot search. So we can call our products dot search. Now it's all contained in the model. And now we have all of this like kind of business logic in our model handling the search functionality. And I don't think that's really the responsibility of the model either. The model is really just my place to get data and to store the data not to manipulate or to form it in a way that I want to present it to someone. So I would create a plain old Ruby object called product search. And within there, I would contain all the business logic that's needed to properly do the search. So doing this, I think, has a lot of additional benefits than just simply organizing your code. Let's say if I'm using PostgreSQL and... I'm doing the full text search in there. Everything's going good. Well, 
I might eventually hit a point where we are putting too much strain on our database and we need to now implement Elasticsearch or something else like that. Well, going all throughout my application code to find out where am I doing searching, where am I really kind of hammering and hitting that database hard because of the search functionality is going to be difficult. But if I organize the code to where I have a small plain old Ruby object that handles the search functionality for my products, then I just have to go to this one place or just a very small few places to implement the new functionality. The risk is going to be low because I can easily test this one plain old Ruby object to see if it's still working properly or my test still green without having to go through and make sure that everything is still working right. God, I hate Elasticsearch. Oh, I'm being so negative this week. (laughs) (laughs) Elasticsearch is amazing when it works. He really hates Elasticsearch with a state machine on yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I was just thinking about what would be the ultimate nightmare scenario. I agree with Dave, especially if you want to put a complex search in, then it needs to be handled outside the model. But I like doing, like, I don't know, product.search. So I usually like wrap it at, so I, I, so I can still call that on the model, but it, it goes somewhere else. And just another tidbit about the uh, Poros. One pattern that I usually do... And I know that a lot of people hate this pattern. It's just what I like. So I will have only one entry point into these objects. So if it's something that is not mutating something, then I'll have a call method. So I have a class method call, which then initializes the object. And then it'll call the instance method call. If I am doing something that's mutating, so if this plain old Ruby object is actually mutating something, so making a persisted change to the database, I'll have a perform. Or if it's doing some other kind of action that's going to change data, then I'll use perform. But having only one accessible entry point into these plain old Ruby objects not only makes it a lot easier to test, but you find yourself not breaking the single responsibility principle that each object should do just one small thing and do that one small thing really well without kind of bleeding over into other responsibilities. So I have a question. How many models are, or how many files are in your app Poros folder? Usually a lot. And I will namespace them to keep them organized. I'm very big on namespacing. I think it does wonders for code organization, where I think a lot of other people will say, like, oh, no, to organize code, you have to use microservices. No, you just need to organize your code well. It could be a huge application, but if it's organized well, then it's not that big of a deal. So I guess the other question that I have is, Active Record gives you a whole bunch of goodies that I like to go and kind of make into my own little thing that you would create a class for, that I would just go and happily create a method for. And I I think that's actually a little simpler in a lot of ways because I know where to look. It's one method. Most of them aren't that long or complicated. So do you do that too? Or do you find that there's a certain cutoff for that? Because I don't know. You have to draw the line. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot going on in, in your app too. Yeah, we have to draw a line somewhere. If we don't, then we will get ourselves into an unmaintainable mess. The best example that I can come up with about this is GitLab. I absolutely love GitLab. The product is amazing. Mm-hmm. It does everything that I want it to do. 
But it, have you ever gone and looked into the source code of GitLab? Yes. Not for a while. Yes, I Their have. user model, the user model is over 2,000 lines long. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what touches other things. I have no idea of what is kind of contained. So if we're talking about just like, I don't have a good example, but if we're just talking about a certain piece of functionality, you say, oh, let's just create a method and our model for that. But then it happens again and again and again. And pretty soon you have a hundred methods in there. And the question comes to play is, does this method that I'm using here, is it dependent on other methods in there? And are those methods then dependent on other methods? So if you find yourself having trouble to, let's say you're going to clean up the code by moving all of these dependent methods that are related to each other with the same kind of idea or responsibility into a concern. Not a reusable concern, just a concern in the model. <laughs> I was going to bring that up because that drives me yeah. nuts too. <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, let's just say we're doing that. So we are extracting them into a module that we're then just going to include into this mm -hmm. user model. Are you going to be able to just look at that file and easily be able to do it? Or is it going to take you a long time? And I think if it's the latter, it's going to take you a long time to do. Then you know you have already overcomplicated your model. Gotcha. Yeah, I've worked on an app that they had several concerns for several of their models. And some of my kind, kind of can see a rhyme or reason toward why you grouped them together in this concern. But it, I find it concerning, pun intended. Oh, that no. all of that responsibility winds up just in one class. And then it's, okay, so what was the point of the concern other than we didn't want a 2,000-line class? Instead, we're going to have 3,000 lines of concerns to go into our 500-line class. You know, all of this reminds me of the beginning of Rails, the whole MVC debates. For those that aren't familiar, it's model view controller, mm -hmm. which model is supposed I've to heard of that. Mo model the data views, handles everything related to pre presenting it, and the controller is the control flow of that data to the view ultimately, right? It's uh, a really hard pattern. It's a controversial topic, so you really. Uh, to get a hang on. A lot of people. Well, it's stuck. also it's a controversial topic, right? Like not everybody agrees that's the way to model the the data you know system. What? I'm, I'm good. <laughs> and you're, I'm good you're with at. the M's. I'm good with the V's. <laughs> but there's there's one letter I have a problem with, and it's not the M or the V. The problem is the C, right? <laughs> uh, well, I think. I think Rails has gotten a lot of bad rap from this, right? In that, like, look, we're, here we are talking about how troublesome the models can be or uh, how troublesome mutating the data can be, having it all in one place, right? Like, quickly, a model can blow up with what it's responsible for because it can do so much, right? Like, Active Record can do a whole lot. It can mutate the data, it can read the data. It can it can do all kinds of stuff. It you know it can be stateful, <laughs> right? It has callbacks. It it's procedural in some ways, right? Like you can chain it to do things in a certain process. And so Rails is kind of really bad organizing the business logic, right? It, as as a framework because it lets you do it however you want to, right? Like, but because it does everything all upfront in kind of not encapsulated enough objects, right? Like. <laughs> Being able to just mutate the database and have access to it in a model doesn't really do anything for you aside from 
changing a table a certain way or getting something in a table formatted a specific way, right? Like, and we end up with all of these models that are related to each other that end up becoming very complex because we think of it on the low level in Rails in terms of tables and the way that we structure it. And obviously that changes over time. And I think, Dave, like what, what you've done is kind of made your own piece of the framework that isolates those transactions or things that you want to do in specific ways, right? And it's kind of funny because there are frameworks out there that do all of this stuff, right? Like, <laughs> like there is Trailblazer as an example, which is a Ruby framework built that you could put on top of any rack application that lets you isolate business objects and is procedural in a way that allows you to perform operations that have steps. And, you know, there are other gems out there. Uh, Dry Transactions is another one yeah. that lets you set up business logic. But it, it's kind of funny because here we are with this great, huge framework that's really terrible at being opinionated about how to do these things. <laughs> Well, and the great thing about the framework is that it's opinionated about how to do other things. Right. Yeah. Well, and and I don't know that I have the answer to this. I like Dave's approach, but it I'm sure at some at some point it starts to break down and crumble under its own weight as well. I guess what I was getting at is that I really love Dave's approach. I do it personally too, because I try and encapsulate things that should happen in its own thing rather than in a model that could be many other things, right? Just in the same way a model can be related to many other models. If you have a more isolated place where you can put a specific action or a specific filter, right? Like if we're going back to the example, you know, of the online store, being able to group all the filters in a search thing, we're always trying in Rails to like pull things out of the controller, right? And, And so it's not so fat. Uh, and the same way with the model, I feel like we keep we keep like deciding, oh, hey, like we should not make models so fat, or we should make models fat, or we're trying to decide where to put these things. Really, I think it comes down to encapsulation, right? Like, well, really, we should just make better things that just do specific things that we want to do. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. And I'll introduce my logical fallacy here of why I don't do Trailblazer or dry transactions or anything like that. And this is my paranoia of I am putting all of my trust into these gems that could have a deprecation, either from a Ruby standpoint or Rails standpoint, that would then break my application down the road. And by that, those gems are really well maintained and they do keep up to date pretty often. And I think the risk level is pretty low. But am I really adding cleaner code by using one of those? 
or would having just a procedural step through a active record job or a controller action kind of accomplish a similar thing, allowing me to not have that dependency or that risk level, a gem then just kind of crumbling underneath me. And now the business logic of my application is at risk. I think that sounds like an excuse, Dave. Come on, you just you just like doing it better. You like it, you like it your way. Admit the truth. You I like it. I, I did say it's my <laughs> logical fallacy, so you know I, I'm admitting and owning that. <laughs> so I, I do have a couple more questions on this. One is is a lot of the stuff that I'm thinking about is like with form actions. A lot of times you're just submitting a form. You're getting data. You do you call update on it. Do you create a separate Poro that does that? Or do you just kind of let the controller make the update call? I'll, it, it depends. So if a lot of things need to happen, depending on whether or not that form posts successfully or unsuccessfully, mm-hmm. then I may consider putting that into a Poro, passing in the params to do the update, and then have the flow of the other business logic. Because what I don't want to get myself into a situation of is having many nested conditionals in order to perform whatever business task. So if I find myself doing that, then I know that there is an opportunity to refactor there. I Maybe making a Poro to handle that form update is the way. However, as a default, I try to keep the flow simple enough to where doing the update in the controller action should be sufficient. Okay. So for example, if it were, hey, I'm updating the title of a Drifting Ruby video, right? That That's just going to go through. It's going to call update. You don't have a separate class for yeah. that. But if you're doing something like publish the video and it's got to go do a bunch of other extra stuff once it's kind of saved that object so that it you know maybe it pushes the file to aws and it you know it sets permissions and it does a bunch of stuff that way maybe clips out part of it so that it's like hey here's the free preview on it and then you know the full episodes behind a paywall all of that might live in an object that's the episode published class absolutely and yeah, Drifter Ruby does all of that automatically. I just have to upload the video. Right. It does all the editing for me, cuts out the silence, edit audio parts. It does all the audio normalization, creating the previews. Yeah, I don't have to do any of that manually. And that's me being very sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> I spend yeah, but way too much time doing all of those individual things. No, but my point is, is yeah, if it's got to do some kind of bookkeeping and set set up some extra stuff beyond just hey set published at you know then yeah. then you'll you'll create another object for that yeah well so for example when i do publish an episode i do do a email broadcast out mm-hmm. to all the users and i wouldn't want that broadcast to happen every time i accidentally update the video or something right. like that you know i'm sure we've all kind of been in that situation where we are just sending out emails to people unnecessarily and accidentally and it's just it, it's a mess so having those i've never filled poros, up anyone else's inbox ever <laughs> yeah having those specific poros to handle that part of our business logic i think helps reduce our risk right so that's the other question i have is if you have like a episode publisher or video publisher right that, that does the video and stuff like that do you have another Poro, or maybe it's a sidekick job or something that says, go tell everybody this is published, like a publish email object. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so then you just call the one from the other. I do. And then from there, just in this specific example, I'll actually queue up each email to be its own job that gets triggered out. Because if it fails, Sidekick will try to retry it. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to send someone the same email five times because some user, a couple of hundred down the list, had a strange character in their email. Mm -hmm. Just like you wouldn't want to charge someone five times because it eventually got down to sending them the receipt and then it charges them again and again because the receipt generation failed. So Right. This reminds me a lot of an article from ThoughtBot I read quite a while ago now on, on form objects where they, they tried to yeah. make basically make poros per form. So anytime that you had a form on your application that became its own poro and ultimately they turn they I don't know if they coined the term, I think it's just a design pattern, but form objects. So then like you have a specific form that does whatever it does in it when you submit it, and you know that it's going to do those things no matter what, anytime that you submit it. Uh, and it, I, I've used that pattern before, and it is it saves a, quite a lot of headache. Do you know what all of these design patterns and things have in common, like kind of state machines? They've all got a cool name, haven't they? If if it wasn't didn't have a cool name, like a state machine sounds awesome, sounds like some kind of metal band. What I need to do is come up with an alternative, like cool sounded name for for my pattern, which is not state machines. So here we go. <laughs> Here's the idea is right. Instead of using a state machines, just use if statements. You know, just use a load of if case statements or maybe a case statement, right? But it needs a cool name. Otherwise, you know, just use if statements. I've got to into it. So here's my here's what I've come up with. All right, it's called Juice, and Juice stands for just use if case else, right? So when you talk about juicing up some code, this actually means just going in and kind of deleting all of this stuff and just replacing it with if statements and case statements. I think lukewarm transactions. <laughs> that's, that sounds good. Oh, that's exactly how I would name it. <laughs> yep, yep. So I really want to try this, right? Because... This, this sounds like an approach that's more akin to something that I'm going to find the limitations on once I start trying it, right? As opposed to, I can kind of pick apart some of the things where I'm going, I don't really want to write a class for that. And you're saying, well, then don't. It's basically what I got back, right? You don't need it for that. I think a Poro perform, that might be a little much too for me, but we just have to see. I've seen some I think big it depends forms. on what the form does. Yeah, I've seen some big forms. Yeah, I've I've dealt with some forms where it was like, so I need I need a day to read this code every time I change it, right? So yeah, I, I can definitely see that too. But yeah, do you find any places where this kind of, you feel like there's a little bit too much ceremony or something like that, right? Or, or things like that? So if we're talking about like very large, complex forms, it might also be worthwhile to have an additional attribute on there saying like complete or incomplete. And depending on the form fields, you know kind of what the state... Sorry for that word, Luke. I know it triggers you. But you know what the state of that record is in. So you could have many smaller forms, either through a form wizard or steps or different views that you handle each section. And by doing that, you know, I probably wouldn't use a form object for it. I would just use the normal 
action view forms and just keep it as simple as possible. This would increase the number of controllers that I'm working with. So I would probably namespace those under the common idea of whatever thing I'm creating. But I think it would kind of keep it more to the Rails way, keep the code a bit cleaner. And then we finally do the form submission after you have all of these different parts of that form filled out. Then you're able to do whatever business logic or transactional things that you need to. So you keep all the validations and stuff in your in your models, right? Yeah, yeah. The other question I guess I have is, do you ever use callbacks then? I do. And I pretty much have a very specific rule for callbacks. They can mutate the object which is making the callback, but they cannot mutate other objects or other records. They have to only touch themselves, not others. And an example of that would be um, kind of a old school example. But when you create a new record, you have a like after create callback that generates a token for that record. So this callback is then mutating its own object. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't have a callback that would then mutate another object based on this object's creation. So what I would do that does touch other objects is something in a more modern Rails application with Turbo and doing broadcasts. So if I want to update the view on something, then I can use a after create commit or after destroy commit, after update commit callbacks to then broadcast changes to the browser or to many browsers. And the idea there is, I'm just displaying information. Mm -hmm. If the user is able to hit F5 or Command-R to refresh their browser and see the exact same data, then I'm not introducing any kind of real risk in this particular context. Don't leave... I thought there was something built into Rails 7 where you could kind of hang something off the model and Action Cable would do it all for you. Yeah, that's their broadcasts. So you can have like a broadcasts just that simple helper. And then on any kind of create, update, or destroy, it'll then trigger and broadcast those out. But if you need to send, let's say if you're dealing with a shopping cart and I add a new cart item to my cart, Mm -hmm. you can use that broadcast to then display and render out that new cart item in your shopping cart. But the other DOM elements on the page like your checkout button, usually it says the number of items that are in your cart. It's not going to update that. So you would have to manually have a after create commit callback that would then broadcast to that particular turbo frame tag to update the number of items in the cart. So circling back to the Rails portion of this, is there even a solid foundation that we could have that could solve all these problems? Or is it really better to just roll your own every time. So here's a trigger word that'll upset a lot of people. Service objects. Just make everything a service object. Which That's basically what you did, right? What is it? Yeah, what? which essentially is really just a Poro. But actually look at service objects as something a little bit different but than a Poro. Usually with a service object, those will have a parent class that I'll just name application service or something like that, silly. But 
that application service will have a lot of helper methods in there. A successful question mark method, a failure, errors, and then the uh, result that would actually return back whatever the either API results are or the results of that transaction or the Poro that I was trying to call. So in those cases, I do view service objects as a little bit different, but essentially they are still all just Poros. Yeah. I was going to say that's the primary downside of the service object kind of design is, you know, anything that needs feedback or is dependent upon that result, it, complete, it starts complicating things really fast, right? So this this reminds me of, I don't know if anybody has seen Shopify's Upgrow when they released it. It was only out for a short period of time on the internet. No. There is a uh, kind of web archive you could look up to see pieces of it still. But they had an interesting concept of creating layers for what the various parts of your application were doing that I thought was interesting. And it seemed to me to to just kind of, I mean, circle back to creating an opinionated way of how to do these particular, how to handle these POROs or service objects and how to process them in a series. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has seen it, but the ideas that they came up with were really interesting as far as, you know, how to organize your user inputs separately in their own kind of layer. You had like a results kind of in your own layer and those were buffered between, you know, actions that you wanted to make. I don't know. It still seems to me that we're missing some standard. (laughs) Yeah. Is there an underlying abstraction that we could we could kind of frame all this stuff in. Yeah, at the very bottom of uh, the missing pieces in the web web archive, you can see kind of like a uh, an image of, you know, their top level was a controller that handled directly interacting with the view. And then anytime that, you know, a user needed to do something, they would give it input to action. And the action was responsible for the next layer of going to a repository, which the repository itself would, interact directly with the database, our active record, basically buffer. And then that would come back to the model, which would go back to the action. And they had this kind of like really interesting process and flow for organizing those layers of the user giving use and performing something versus what the application would do with that action. Yeah, Phoenix works kind of that way, where you have the repository and then you have the model on top of it. And the model mostly has, yeah, the kinds of create object, you know, create an object from this, create an object from that, update, update from this, update from that. And so whatever you need, the business object logic all lot lives in the model. And then you pass, you know, the repo is basically talk to the database. Assistance layer. Yeah. So I guess what I'm getting at is I think we're missing a letter in the acronym of MVC. <laughs> and maybe the S for ser- service objects should go... <laughs> Mask. <laughs> MVC. 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 I really just messed up the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. I, I think we're going to call Dave's thing Rails on Rails. <laughs> well, we do have to be careful because with any kind of pattern that we take, we can abuse it. And when we start to go down that road of overusing a pattern, we can get ourselves into real trouble. So I worked on a .NET application many, many, many years ago where they took this idea of encapsulation, like 
breaking out everything into its own little tiny file was overdone. So I was trying to find, you know, where are they defining this form submit button? And I had to jump through 10, 12 different files of nested components within nested yeah. components within nested components just to get to the actual class, the HTML class that was being used for that button. And it was a nightmare to do just to replicate that and to create another type of button. It took me a few days because I had to jump through and trace back all these steps. So we do have to be careful that when we are taking any kind of design pattern, whether it's form objects or service objects, if we are doing state machines, that we're not overusing it and abusing it to the point where now we were just, we would have been better off to have a fat controller. Yeah, I, I'm kind of wondering too, because you know, you've talked about this. Sounds like Valentino, you've done some approaches similar to this. Yeah, where is that cutoff, right? I mean, you, you're talking about things kind of getting way too granular. I'm also wondering on the other end, you know, what point do you look at a service object and say, wow, there's way too much going on in here? Where do you draw those lines? H how do you do that? I mean, I guess there's some feel to it, but do you Sandy Metz the thing and say 10 lines? I don't know. A Rubocop it? I do remember an interview with DHH a while ago where he talked about how he uses controllers and, and basically tons of controllers. <laughs> right. And, you know, all, going back to the kind of restful applications that kind of Rails Foundation is built on is making, and it, it seems Hotwire even it is wrapped around this same premise, right? Where the more controllers, the better, the easier it's going to be to hook them up and, and make them actionable. I've definitely seen that if when it's done right, like you said, Dave, anything can be abused, but having the controllers like kind of all over the place with specific purposes uh, that do specific actions and just kind of overusing those controllers can also kind of help. But like you said, Chuck, it depends. <laughs> Where is the line? I would say if you're starting small, keep them in the controller and the model. <laughs> I, I hate to say mm -hmm. I hate to say that after all of our talk, but if you're just making a a small startup of your own, yeah. you know, like the traditional Rails way of, oh, I just need to get something up and running really quickly. I guess the foundation of Rails works really great for that. When, when you start to grow in size, though, I, I would like to know kind of what those stats look like. I don't have so, an answer. And I'm going to push you on one thing. The only thing worse than the wrong abstraction is two abstractions. So when you decide you need to move it from the, the small startup app to the I'm getting complicated app and you start moving stuff over, okay, now do I look in the model or do I look in the service objects? I, I, that's, that's worse in my head than I've got too much stuff in my model or I've got, I picked up service objects too early. Yeah, and a, a lot of this is going to be subjective for the team. Yeah. So you ask, when are we going too far? I would say when, you know, that team is saying like, wow, this game really complicated. Hopefully you guys or, you know, hopefully the team will kind of pick up on that before you get down that rabbit hole too far and be able to pull yourself back out mm -hmm. to kind of rethink it. Hopefully not at the cost of too much time, but it really is a subjective thing. We don't have an answer. And I think that's partially why Rails does not provide an answer because there really isn't a good one yet. Yeah, well, I do like the 
that, wow, this is getting really complicated. Because again, at both ends of the spectrum, right, we've broken this down into really, really, really tiny service objects. And man, this is getting really complicated, right? You're taking it too far. Or, boy, my model classes have way too much going on in them. That's also too complicated. And you haven't, you need a new abstraction, right? You need to move into something like what you're talking about. And so, yeah, when I, I like that too, because what I found in just about everything, both in my career and, and, you know, like where I wind up and in my code is once I start thinking, Hey, this isn't what I want. That's about the time that I need to start fixing it because it's going to about to get really painful. Yeah. So I think the proper measure is if you're a solo developer, is future me going to hate past me for doing this? Or if your team mm-hmm. is my team, future team going to hate my past team for doing this? Right. Or for waiting to do this. Because sometimes yeah. doing nothing is, I wish I'd done it different. All right. How are we on time? Past. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, we are kind of getting toward the end of our scheduled time. Is there anything else you want to add to this, though? All things can be made better if you use hot wire. I just I, I, I say that in a joking way, but in a serious way, too. I have successfully upgraded Drift and Ruby from... It was originally, I think, a Rails 4 application. It's running Rails 7 now, latest. I got rid of Turbolings, jQuery, cool. all of the historical stuff in the Rails app, and it's now running full... Hotwire, so Turbo and Stimulus. I got rid of all the manual action cable stuff that I was doing, and I'm now using the broadcast. I must say that Hotwire has almost pushed me to write cleaner code. Because whereas before I was doing a lot of stuff, either in a controller action or in the view, I broke up into partials and or more controllers. And by doing that, uh, the code was cleaner, but it worked much nicer with Hotwire. So Hotwire, I think, kind of helps us move towards smaller bits of code, more controllers at the byproduct, but it's also cleaner. Nice. I'd just like to say, don't hate the state, hate the machine. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dave, you have any other picks? Oh, we're doing picks now? It sounds like it. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. No, uh, so I do have a pick. I've been more conscientious about air quality, like CO2, PPM, in my office Uh and stuff because that's where I spend most of my time. So my first pick is going out to Air Things, which is similar to the AeroWare that DHH recommends, but that's like $900 on Amazon right now, which is insane. This thing was so pricey, but... um, For $900, I will go to your office and personally sniff the air. (laughs) And... The second thing, I haven't received it yet, but I did order it to give it a shot. It's But the concept, the idea, you can do a DIY version of it. It's an Algenair, and essentially it's like a little lava lamp that you fill up with the, the algae, and it grows in there. And algae is a natural CO2 scrubber and oxygen producer. So I think having one of those in my small office here might also help lower the CO2 levels mm. 
know, maybe not as much as just opening up the window, but I don't like sunlight and stuff. So I'm a hermit. So I ship you a whole picks. box of garlic. <laughs> All right, Luke, what are your picks? Ah, oh, so I, I, I my, my sister has a disability, and I took her to a, an a orchestral event uh, last weekend. So I was away from home, and I had to work remotely in a copy shop, which I don't generally do these days. But I was incredibly productive because I had my new MacBook. I got an M, whatever it is, MacBook. I know, I know Dave got his last year. He's had it for ages, but I've never taken it out before. And five hours later, the thing was still on 85% battery. That was just incredible. But I was coding over remote SSH extension on a VS Code. And that, that thing's brilliant. I mean, usually I'm in Vim over an SSH terminal, but using a VS Code with a remote Explorer plugin really, really worked. So I picked that starters. I love it. Yes, yeah, great. Uh, I know you've been talking about this for ages, but it's the first time I've done it in anger, you know, sitting in a coffee shop, banging away on the thing. And wow, really, really worked. I tackled some really hard problems. Uh, my second pick is a bit of a weird pick. It's an electronics pick, and it's a way of turning off a device when you close a switch. So when you make a connection, you touch two wires together, it turns the device off. And it uses a MOSFET, basically. It's on the electronic stack exchange. That, 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 wow, that really works. And you would think it would be using loads of electricity, but it doesn't. It's like, you know, one millionth of an amp. And if you're doing certain projects, sometimes it's much easier to have a switch that closes than one that opens, just for kind of hardware reasons. So that's a good one. And another pick is the, the Pwn kit. This is a major Linux vulnerability this week which is a major vulnerability in PolKit on Linux. PolKit is a thing that generally gets installed to allow things that should be root, but they're not, you don't want them to be. So if you're running like a desktop and you want to shut down the machine, usually a normal user can't do that. You don't want to have people to have type their password to shut down their machine. I can't stand PolKit, and I've been uninstalling it from machines for years. And it's really gratifying to find it as a major root exploit that's been in there since 2009. So it turns out I was right to uninstall Polkit. And a probably final pick is uh, British Computer Society. I mentioned I was joining this a while ago. This is a professional body for people who work with computers, like software developers. I know the, I think the equivalent in the States is the ACM. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people don't join these kind of things. I was very skeptical as to why I should like pay a few hundred dollars and join the professional body. But uh, I've really got some value out of it. So I would recommend if you're in the States of joining your local professional organization for software development, because you do get, if you may be working in a small company or a startup, you do get to meet some more interesting people, people working at larger organizations and who have different ideas about things. So yeah, that's it for me. Interesting. Uh, Valentino, what are your picks? So on the topic of kind of abstractions, I highly recommend Sandy Metz's 99 Bottles of OOP. It's a fantastic book. covers a lot of great design concepts that can kind of help structure your business logic the way that you want. Another pick I just got, a, uh, I joined the 3D printing realm just the other day, and I bought a, uh, an SLA printer made by Elegoo. It's the Saturn, and it's fantastic. Uh, it's a resin printer, basically, and it has such fine detail. I've only, I've only printed two things, so... <laughs> 
<laughs> I can't really speak too highly of it yet, but from what I've printed, it, I just took it out of the box and poured some resin in and it printed fantastic. So I can't say much more than that. Just a disclaimer about resin. That stuff is highly toxic. Yeah. So be sure to read the instructions, watch videos about it on proper handling. Because otherwise, you can get the chemicals on you and it's really bad. It's, it's, it's really delicious too. So don't drink too much. <laughs> yeah, I did have it in my office and the fumes were bad and I moved it to the garage. So it's much better suited in that environment. <laughs> uh, my last final pick, uh, just something small. Git was just updated and released version 2.35, which has this very great addition to git stash command, which gives you a little flag called dash dash staged that just takes all the files that you've added, so-called staged in Git, and stashes them away separately. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. I've been using it a lot and really great addition. Cool. Well, I think I'll get an Air Things and a resin printer, and that way I'll know how bad it is for me. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be bad. I know, right? I got a few picks here. I may look at the Air Things, too, because my son's been having some issues. He wakes up coughing every morning, and we can't quite figure out what's causing it. So yeah, see if it detects them. Anyway, I'm going to throw out a handful of picks. Now, one pick that I have, I always do the board game pick first, but I have to preface it because I got to tell a little bit of a story. So um, on Monday, we went down for my wife's step-grandmother. Anyway, her stepdad's mother passed away. And uh, so we were down there for the funeral. And my daughter, we'd had COVID or what we think is COVID due to the testing shortage. We didn't get tested. Go through our house. And we went down and my six-year-old was just coughing and stuff. And we were like, we, you know, everybody else was over it. We didn't really want to chance getting anyone sick that hadn't already been around her. So I just stayed at my in-law's house and I bought her this uh, cat puzzle at Walmart for like seven bucks. And she, we've really been enjoying it. And so I'm going to start out just by picking the, spend time on the things that really matter, like the people that really matter because uh you know she's she's in here every day now after school can we do my puzzle and we'll do it for 20 minutes you know made her day and i try and do that with my other kids too so definitely do something like that but uh, i'm using it to preface my pick because i always do a board game pick and i'm going to pick a game that has to do with cats and quilts like this puzzle now she hasn't played it with us and it's probably a little above her head it's a relatively simple gameplay game but you're going to sit there and stare at your board when you're playing it going, okay, how do I manage to do everything I want to do? So effectively, it's a game where you're building a quilt and you've got the little hexagonal square piece or the hexagonal pieces. And you put them into the board to form patterns, right? And they have patterns and colors. Each one has a pattern and a color. And so you put the scoring tiles on your board first and each board tells you where to put them or how to put them. And then what you're trying to do is you're trying to match things up around the scoring tiles. And there are a few other ways to score as well. So around one tile, it's like three and three. So you can have three of one pattern and three of another pattern. And you can have three of one color and three of another color. And if you match one and not the other, you get a certain number of points. If you get both color and pattern matched, right? So three of one color, three of another color, and three of one pattern, three of another pattern, then you get more points. This is sounding right? a lot like steampunk Candy Crush. Okay, I haven't played that. Then other ones like two, two, and two, and then another one's like have all of them different, so you can have all different patterns and all different colors. And what you do is you play a tile from your hand and a tile from the 
face up tiles and then it's the next person's turn, right? So the gameplay is pretty simple. It's okay, well, I have no clue what I'm going to get next, you know, what's going to be available to me. So I have to strategically place things so that I can, you know, take advantage of whatever is available to me next and without knowing what it is. So that's where you sit there and stare at the board trying to figure out, okay, what do I put and where do I put it? But it's a fun game. And you, if you do certain patterns on the board, then you can place a cat on them. If you do like colors, there was, you know, like a rainbow pin that you got and stuff like that. And they all count for different points. And so at the end of the game, you just tally it all up and whatever cats and pins you've earned, you, you know, that's your score and you won. So anyway, it's, it's pretty fun game. There are some more complicated patterns. I've only played the basic patterns a couple of times, but it's a fun game. So if you're looking for a game, Calico is, is the game. Uh, another pick that I have related to something that you can't just go buy on Amazon. So I've been thinking a lot about the different things that are going on out in the world. And I'm going to try not to get too political on this, but it seems like everybody's worried about the government cramming down, right? You, you hear people worried about, you know, mandates from the Biden administration. You heard people worried about, you know, some of the overreach the Trump administration might or might not do. And the way that you mitigate a lot of that is by supporting your local situation, right? So if, you, if you're worried about what's going on in the schools, get involved with your local school board, you know, get involved in your local PTA, go, you know, get involved there. We've seen cities and states defying and or filing lawsuits to not have to participate in federal stuff. And so again, you know, your local political situation, your local people are, are kind of where you want to get involved. And then again, if you invest in your local economy instead of the broader, and you can't always do this, but, you know, instead of investing in the broader economy, right? So you buy locally grown food, um, you know, locally made items as much as you can. Then what that does is, again, it minimizes the effect from, you know, outside influences. And, you know, you can stand up a little firmer, you know, when there is overreach from further up the chain. And I just really encourage everybody to get involved, Uh, get to know who your mayor is, get to know who your city council is, get to know who's on the school boards, get to know who's in your state legislature. If you're not in the U.S., you know, whatever the uh, parallels are to that, because those are the people who are really going to be empowered to stand up for you when you have something encroached. And so I'm not preaching any particular ideology or particular issues. I think everybody is smart enough to sit down and figure out what they believe. And I, I encourage you to talk to people in your area, but Uh, You know, overall, that's where a lot of the decisions that really impact you get made. And those are the people who are going to go fight and fight for you. So if you're considering the the current situation, I just uh, encourage you to be as locally involved as possible. And then what the other thing you'll find is that the people who are involved locally, some of them typically wind up being the people who are involved uh, on the larger scene eventually. So anyway, so that's my pick. Get involved in your local uh, issues and make sure that you have people representing you there. And Top End Devs, if you go to Top End Devs slash events, topendevs.com slash events, I'm going to be putting on some uh, career workshops and getting some of my uh, friends, some of them you've probably heard of that are higher profile people uh, to come and do workshops. And those recordings will be available in the Top End Devs membership, but I'm probably going to open up at least the first handful of them for free to attend live. 
So uh, go to topendevs.com slash events, and you'll be able to see when those are coming up. I'm also going to be putting on some summits this year, and that's another area that will show up in the events and conferences pages. So we got everybody's picks, right? I think we did. All right, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Thank you, guys. This was really, really interesting. And now I have to go and see what Dave's talking about in my code. All right. I'll talk to you all later. Yeah. Till next time. Max out, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.